What in the world is Puseyism? That's the question demanded by the title of this week's featured sermon on this podcast, A Blow for Puseyism. It was preached by Charles Haddon Spurgeon on the 8th of October, 1865, a Sunday morning, at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. If you're new to this podcast, my name is Jeremy Walker. I'm your host. You can find out more about us by looking up mediagratii.org slash podcasts, where, amongst other things and amongst other podcasts, you can find a weekly newsletter sign-up where you can get a copy of the featured sermon in your inbox with a brief introduction. You can also follow us at Reading Spurgeon on Twitter, where we try and post some daily quotes from uh, the sermons most days. And uh, you can also listen, as we've said, to uh, other podcasts and find other resources at mediagratii.org who are kind enough to produce this podcast. Each week we read through a, a series of Spurgeon sermons, the great Victorian pastor evangelist. This week we're in sermons 647 to 653, and that last sermon, 653, is this week's featured sermon, which is the one that goes out on the newsletter and the one that is featured here uh, on this podcast. So, why a blow for Puseyism and what in the world is Puseyism? Well, at this point in his ministry, Charles Spurgeon was engaged in a particular battle against ceremonialism, religious ceremonialism or sacramentalism. Now, the man to whom he refers in this uh, sermon is a man called Edward Pusey. And Edward Pusey was an Anglican who was a leading light in what was called the Oxford Movement. Now, in the Oxford Movement, you've got uh, basically people who have signed up to uh, Anglicanism but are pursuing what you might call a high church agenda. So high church Anglicanism is or has become uh, Anglo-Romanism, a sort of a combination or a a Roman Catholicized version of Anglicanism. So it's drifting back towards Anglicanism's Reformation roots in Roman Catholicism. And in Spurgeon's day, this was particularly prevalent. Some of the, uh, I was going to say, some of the chickens which laid their eggs in those days have come home to roost. But uh, the chickens have come home to roost, or the uh, the eggs which were laid have hatched. So let's not mix our metaphors, even if we're all talking about chickens. The point is that the things that were uh, being laid, the foundations that were being laid in those days, have sadly been built upon ever since. So what Spurgeon is doing here, having over the course of the year in which this sermon was preached and and the previous year perhaps, having engaged with this sacramentalism, this idea that the the means of grace in particular, so especially things like the, uh, the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, in and of themselves bestow grace on anyone who participates in them or has been subjected to them, Spurgeon is pushing back against this. And he uses this sermon to make some of these particular points. His text is John chapter 6 and verse 63. It is the spirit that quickens or enlivens. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Now, 
Spurgeon is dealing specifically here with what he perceives to be primarily Roman Catholic error that is creeping into Anglicanism, but the general principle that lies behind it of this kind of flesh principle or this carnality in worship. So he he begins with a distinction between the flesh and the spirit. His introduction asks what is meant by the flesh and what is the meaning of the term spirit. Now he knows that the word flesh is used in scripture in a number of different ways. In this passage he says it means that which is outward and sensuous, appealing to the eye or the ear or to other powers of man's bodily nature. And he says there was much of this in the Jewish faith. Paul uses the same term in the same way when speaking to the Judaizing Galatians. He asks them, having begun in the spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? So, external ceremonial religion is well and aptly set forth here as flesh. That's his uh, point. That's his connection. When we're talking about the flesh, one of the things that it could be referring to in this context would be merely external ceremonial religion. What then, in contrast, is the meaning of the term spirit? He says, if the Holy Spirit had been intended in the judgment of our translators, they would have placed a capital S. But it cannot refer to the Holy Spirit, because there's a key sentence that explains the language. The words which I speak unto you, they are spirit. And words cannot be the Holy Spirit, says Spurgeon. So what you've got in the word spirit here is this deliberate contrast with the flesh. Flesh, then, is external religion, the carnal part of it, that which the eye sees and the ear hears. Spirit is the inward part of religion, that which the soul understands, receives, believes and feeds upon. This it is, this spiritual element in religion which quickens it and makes it a living thing, while the mere external, the flesh, except as the spirit quickens it, profits nothing. And it's a a spiritual principle then in religion, consistent with the spiritual nature which God the Holy Ghost gives to us. What then is the life of godliness, asks our preacher? What the vitality and essence of acceptable worship? His answer virtually is, not your outward observances. This is Christ's answer, he's saying. Not your outward observances, but your inward emotions, desires, believings and adorings, which are in living worship. Then he adds in effect, my words are not concerning outward observances, but are of a spiritual character. I come not to you with touch not, taste not, handle not, or with wash, vow, stand, sit, kneel. My words deal with inner life and spirit and are addressed to your spiritual natures. The words which I speak unto you are spirit and life. Now we've spent a lot of time on that introduction, more than perhaps we often do, because Spurgeon is trying to be quite careful and precise here and demonstrate the working, if you will, with regard to his exegesis of the passage. What he's uh, setting out before us here as a contrast between flesh and spirit is absolutely vital in our understanding of the text and then how he proceeds with it. And so he's going to work through those elements. What is this unprofitable flesh? What is this enlivening spirit? And what do we have to do then with those uh, words which Christ speaks, which are spirit 
and life. So that first point, the unprofitable flesh, the external observances of religion in themselves utterly unprofitable. And he begins with what he considers the greatest monstrosity of this kind in the present day, the idea of the real and corporeal presence, the bodily presence of the Lord Jesus in what is superstitiously called the Blessed Sacrament. Now, his point is not just that this is a doctrine merely of the Church of Rome, but that this idea of a transubstantiation is extensively preached and believed in the Church of England. So it's come into a church, the, the, the foundation or the constitution of which is meant to be definitively Protestant. It is meant to set it apart from Roman Catholicism and some of its key errors, amongst which is this idolatrous notion of the real and bodily presence of the Lord Christ in what is superstitiously called the Blessed Sacrament. Do men receive the body and blood of Christ in the Lord's Supper, he asks? Yes, spiritual men do, in a real and spiritual sense, but not in a carnal way, not so as to crush it with their teeth, or taste it with their palate, or digest it by the gastric juice. They receive the Lord Jesus as incarnate and crucified into their spirits, as they believe in him, love him, and are comforted by thoughts of him. So it is not my body which receives Jesus in the eating and drinking of bread and wine, but my spirit. I believe in him, casting myself alone upon him, trusting him. I feel joy and peace, love and zeal, hatred of sin and love of holiness, and as my, so as to my spiritual nature, I am fed upon him. So Spurgeon really believes that the Lord's table is a means of grace, but that grace is is communicated to us not in a carnal fashion. You don't get grace because you ate the body of Jesus and you drank the blood of Jesus. You don't even get grace because you ate some bread and drank some wine. You get grace because by faith you engage in the truth that is being communicated to you in eating and drinking, laying hold upon the Christ by faith who is presented to you in these symbols. So my spiritual nature feeds upon truth, love, grace, promise, pardon, covenant, atonement, acceptance, all of which I find and much more in the person of the Lord Jesus. Up to the extent in which my spirit has communion with the Lord Jesus, the ordinance of breaking of bread is living and acceptable because the spiritual element quickens it. But to the extent in which I merely receive the bread and wine and my spirit is not exercised about Jesus Christ, to that extent it profits me nothing. It is a mere external ceremony and nothing more. The bread is only bread, the wine merely wine. The eating simply eating bread and no more. The whole outward ceremony is what it seems to be and not a jot more. But the unseen fellowship of hearts with Jesus, this is the quickening element and this alone. Now, says Spurgeon, the same is true in the case of baptism. And we've already looked at that famous sermon on baptismal regeneration. Spurgeon's point again here is that just sprinkling water or even immersing in water in and of itself has no impact on the, the sin of the person who is being sprinkled or baptized unless it's received with faith. 
the putting away of the filth of the flesh is nothing. But the answer of a good conscience toward God is the vitality or life of baptism. It is only vital, only lively, up to the extent in which the Spirit exercises itself. This tells strongly against the baptism of infants. So whether you be infants or adults, if your renewed spirit enters into the form, it quickens the form and makes it live. But if you come to it without spiritual life and without exercising spiritual emotions, the water, the fleshly part of the ordinance, profits you nothing. It is only so far as your spirit has fellowship with Christ in it, both in the act and in after meditation upon it, that baptism becomes of the slightest possible profit to you. So says Spurgeon, if you're doing these things merely with regard to the flesh, it profits nothing. Now he moves on to some other things. The doctrine of the apostolical succession. There are certain persons still out of bedlam. He means there are certain people who haven't yet been put in the madhouse who say of all ministers but those of their own sect, no matter how much the Lord may have honoured them in the conversion of sinners and the edification of saints, that they are intruders and not true ministers of Christ. Their clerics are the legitimate successors of the apostles and they only. Now, he says, we will allow the historical question and he's, He's really uh, not beating around the bush here. There's, there's some real uh, venom, we might say, in his language. We will suppose that up to Judas or some other apostle, they can trace a line through the popes of Rome or archbishops of Canterbury. Now, he's dealing with this idea that, and it's current in, the, in this high church Oxford movement, that there is a, an apostolic succession and it is only through that apostolic succession that any authority and validity is found in the ministry in the church. Spurgeon says, We don't care a fig either way for your fleshly succession. We demand that you prove your spiritual one. In other words, true apostolic succession is found in the preaching of apostolic truth not in this uh, notion that by laying on of hands from one to another, some actual authority is conferred in the church. If the Apostle Paul himself came to find out his successor, where would he look for him? In the missionary doing apostolic work, or in the bush bishop talking about what he'll do after the other has laid the foundation and stained it with his blood? And now he moves on. Now, let's bear in mind that up to this point, he's primarily been striking at this high church school in the Anglicanism of his day. If you think that's largely irrelevant now, you might wish to consider uh, Her Majesty the Queen's funeral that recently took place, at least at time of recording of this podcast, in which, alongside the Archbishop of Canterbury, a Roman Catholic cardinal was invited to read his own prayer. These, these pressures, these uh, things prominent, are still very much the case in modern Anglicanism. But even so, Spurgeon says it's not just outside of dissent, it also comes in to nonconformity. And so he brings it closer to home. Because remember, he's not just fighting against certain examples, he's contending with regard to certain principles. So, much is said nowadays about an ornate form of worship. Melodious music is much extolled. 
The swell of the organ begets a hallowed frame of mind, we're told. We know this from experience. We need great music because of the influence that music can have on our affections. Spurgeon's point, is the effect sensuous? Is it only in the flesh or is it truly spiritual? Is it not to be feared that an anthem in a service is often no more a spiritual exercise than a glee at a concert? Music has charms, and he who cannot feel them is to be pitied. But then, acceptable heart worship is quite another thing. Let's press on. Architecture. If combinations of stone can sanctify the spirit of man, it's a pity that the gospel didn't prescribe architecture as the remedy for the ruin of the fall. And again, I think it's worth bearing in mind that uh, there's a lot of discussion today, some of it helpful, but it seems to point toward the idea that we need a certain grandeur in our architecture, a certain style, a certain feeling communicated by the place in which we worship in order to make it somehow a fitting place for worship. He goes on to talk about the pompous array of ministering priests and the beauty of symbology, the painting of windows, the smoke of incense, which are intended to draw people into the place of worship and then allegedly to aid in elevating their minds. And what does the scripture say about it all? This was tried among the Jews, and Christ's remark when he comes to sum up the long trial is, it's the spirit that quickens, the flesh profits nothing. The real inward spirit of man is not blessed by sounds which charm the ear, but do not appeal to the understanding, not by colours which delight the eye, but do not gladden the affections of man. His point is, these things are carnal, they have to do only with the flesh. It may as be as well to be artistic as to be plain. He's not saying that there's no value in, in, in simplicity, in, in beauty, in utility. But it's no matter either way if tested by the word. So he's saying don't build your hopes on the beauty or the impressiveness of a place or its people or its symbol or whatever. Now he says, what about eloquence? Because too many preachers, and he brings the matter even closer to those who would call themselves non-conformists, have come to think that oratorical ability is essential in the minister. They, they're looking to this, and in itself it could be merely carnal. It is not enough, some think, to preach the truth with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. We must also preach it in the wisdom of words with excellency, excellency of speech. No uh, no irony intended in stumbling over that language. The trappings of oratory and the drapery of eloquence are thought to be profitable. Ah, dear friends, one half of the emotions excited in our places of worship are of no more value than those excited at the theatre. Now again, the point is that there are merely carnal instruments which can have an influence upon us in a religious setting that might make us think they're having a spiritual impact. But the point is that if they're merely external, they profit nothing. So far as the truth itself moves out in most souls, preaching is of real service. But if you, you hear that which commends itself to you only because of the sweet voice that speaks it, the telling tones in which it is delivered, your hearing is a carnal exercise. It is your spirit which needs to grasp the truths spoken, your heart which needs to embrace Christ. And now he begins to push it 
in a number of different directions. We may bring this principle to bear on the revivals over which we've watched with much hope, but with more anxiety. He says that the excitement that's present in revivals is too often a merely carnal enthusiasm. And though that excitement may sometimes be used by God to stir the spirit of a man, unless religion is based on something more than mere animal excitement, it is based upon a lie. You can't just be carried along by your affections or emotions. Take care of any religion which merely tickles your fancy, excites your passions, or stirs your blood. True grace penetrates the very core of our nature. So perhaps we need to be a little more careful with some of those great congregations singing stirring hymns. It's delightful, but what's having its impact upon you? Is it the sense of place? Is it the sweep of the music? Is it the uh, magnificence of the singers? Is it even the sense of being caught up with many people together? Or is it the truth that is having an impact upon your soul? What about prayer and the ordinances of God's house? Don't forget the rule that the spirit quickens and the flesh profits nothing. Have you been praying, someone might ask? If you say yes, but it's been a flesh prayer, the dead form without the life of the heart, then it's not really prayer. It's only that prayer in which the Spirit talks with God that is real prayer at all. It's not enough just to be a talker on your knees. You need to actually deal with God. Some of the best prayers that have ever been prayed did not have a single word to express them with, says Spurgeon. They were heart prayers and went up to heaven in all their naked, unclothed glory like disembodied spirits and God accepted them. While many a prayer that has had the choicest words to garnish it has been nothing but a dead prayer wrapped up in cerements and only fit to be cast into the grave forever. And so with public worship, you can go along, you can be in the right place, you can do all the right things, you can sing the hymns, you can uh, cover your eyes too, you can uh, think about what the preacher talks about and so on and so forth. You get through the whole exercise, you feel quite easy, but just being there and going through the motions profits nothing. Shake off the idea, says Spurgeon, that going up to a place of worship, opening a Bible, reading family prayer, kneeling down, can as mere acts save your souls. Importantly, I do not speak against them as to their profit in some respects. He's not saying they're utterly worthless. What he's saying is you cannot rely upon them as mere exercises to accomplish any real spiritual good. The mere form profits nothing. And then lastly, under this first main heading, there are certain people who take considerable delight in having seen as they think visions and other manifestations of Christ with their eyes and having heard certain texts mysteriously spoken in their ears. Well, he says, I'm not going to deny that you've seen visions and heard sounds. I don't think you did, but whether you did or not is no matter because they don't profit you. If it comes merely to the eye, it's nothing. It must come to the soul's eye of faith. A mere hearing with the ear on the side of your head is nothing. The truth needs to get into your heart's ear. Your soul needs to hear it. And that brings him then to this quickening or enlivening spirit. His point is 
that the merely external, whether it's Roman Catholic or uh, Anglo-Roman or uh, non-conformist, whether it's you know, the, the higher church or, or some bleeding of it into the, the low church Christianity, it doesn't matter where it's found. Anything that emphasizes mere forms, mere externalities, and has no regard for the operations of the Spirit is not of spiritual profit. By contrast, the spiritual nature truly quickens a man, and that's where true life is found in religion. The man who was not received by the work of God, the Holy Spirit, a spiritual nature, is described by Paul as being dead in trespasses and sins. Until the Holy Spirit operates, a man is dead. And it is by the Holy Spirit that all the ordinances are quickened, as the Spirit in an enlivened man gets a hold of all these things. So in baptism, a spiritual man comes to baptism and is baptised, and he quickens or enlivens the baptism. It becomes a real living baptism to him, for he has fellowship with Jesus Christ in it. Through the influences of the Spirit upon his spirit, he enters into the ordinance spiritually. A carnal man eats and drinks damnation unto himself at the supper, not discerning the Lord's body. The spiritual man enjoys a living ordinance, the bread setting forth to him the body of Christ, the wine, the blood, and in spirit, in spirit, he feeds upon his incarnate Saviour. The Lord's Prayer, said backwards, is quite as acceptable to God as the Lord's Prayer said forwards unless the Spirit enters into it. You might as well repeat the multiplication table as repeat the collect of the day as far as God is concerned unless your spirit prays. You must have your heart engaged. If you give bread to the hungry, visit the sick, subscribe towards a good object, all nothing, unless your heart is in the deed. But if I feed the poor because I love Jesus, if I seek to glorify God in my deeds of charity and holiness, they become living actions. He's pressing home the fact that this spiritual nature is from God. The Divine Father is its author. He has begotten us again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It comes by the actual operation of the Holy Spirit. The mark by which this spirituality is discovered or revealed is faith. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Every man who rests upon Christ for salvation has the proof of his being spiritual. Modes of speech, of dress, of worship are not the marks of the spiritual, but simple spiritual faith in the Lord Jesus. Now this is this is so vitally important. Again, you think back to the uh, the royal funeral, and you, you you think of some of the responses to it. People who say, "Oh, I I know that it's not about the externals, but boy, you can see why we love this kind of stuff, can't you? You see why we're so impressed by the smells and the bells, by the uh, the copes and the capes and the and the crowns. You see why we love the gold and the silver. You see why we love the great vaulted buildings. You see why we love the the great processions and the the choirs and so forth. You understand, don't you, why people are going to this kind of thing? Why evangelicalism is losing its its young people and some of its old people to this kind of thing? No, no, you don't. 
These things are outside of the Holy Spirit and sometimes just in themselves simply carnal. They accomplish nothing for us. In themselves there is no religion, no real spiritual effect, no conferring of any blessing by any of these things especially when they're not engaged in with the the spirit of a man enlivened by the spirit of God. Most of mankind cannot get on, though, with a religion in which there's nothing to see, nothing to please the ear, nothing to gratify the taste. This is Spurgeon again. It's only the spiritual man who is so overwhelmed with the glories of God that he does not need the glories of man, so overcome with the splendor of Christ that he does not want the splendor of the mass, so taken up with the magnificence of the great high priest that he does not care for gorgeously apparelled priests. Blessed is that man who sees though his eye be blind, who hears though his ear be deaf, who tastes though his appetite fail, who lives though his heart and flesh fail. Blessed is the man who sees him who is invisible and has revealed unto him what eye has not seen and what ear has not heard. Spurgeon says that won't suit many of you. A religion of thinking and believing is too hard for you. Repenting, believing, trusting, these things men will not do. They'll kneel down any quantity of times. They will even, if told by a priest, lick the floor with their tongues or walk with peas in their shoes or whip their backs. But when it comes to believing, hoping, trusting, fearing, men are so little inclined to mental operations, especially under the dictation of a higher authority, that they will not have anything to do with them. Now, do we understand what is at stake? Do we see what the issues are? How careful we have to be, whether we are high church or low church, whether we're conformists or nonconformists, whether we like the smells and bells or repudiate them, that we do not imagine that anything that is merely fleshly conveys any real blessing, confers any real grace outside of the exercise of the Holy Spirit-enlivened heart of a man. The Saviour tells us thirdly that his words are spirit and life. Listen to other teachers and you get precepts concerning washing, eating, bowing, etc., which are fleshly. But here Jesus and his words all aim at the heart. Listen to the Puseyite. Hear his words. You should take care to attend matins and early celebrations in our holy and beautiful church. You should decorate the altar, get a surpliced choir, have processions, and put on the holy garments. Worthless. Now you see at once, says Spurgeon, that these are not spiritual things, these are not life. Ritual performances are very pretty spectacles for silly young ladies and sillier men to gaze upon, but there's no shadow of spirit or life in them. The high church ritual does not look like a divine thing. On the contrary, if I stand among the throng and gaze at all its prettinesses, it looks amazingly like a nursery game or a stage play. Now, I know not everybody has the same influences, the same history, uh, the same consciousness of these things, but there is a lot in much of modern evangelicalism that has the sniff or the sense of proto-Roman Catholicism about it. There's an appetite 
for the external, an appetite for the showy, an appetite for the emotionally manipulative, an appetite for the audio-visual that by itself is damning because it has a merely emotional, affectional effect and does not engage the mind and the heart. My spirit does not care for these fooleries, says Spurgeon, but turns away sickened and cries, there's nothing for me here, no more nourishment for the spirit in all this than there's food for man in a swine's trough. Spurgeon says, I'm fixing my hope in this battle on my Lord's words, and I wish that all ministers of Christ would scorn to use any other weapons. I know the talk is that we ought to vie with the false churches in the beauty of our services, but this is a temptation of the devil. You see, he's making this point that we've just been making. If the simple preaching of the cross will not attract the people, let them stop away. Our weapons are the words of Jesus. These are spirit and these are life. Architecture, apparel, music, liturgies, these are neither spirit nor life. Let those rest on them who will. We can do without them by God's help. Our sires, our forefathers in the Puritanic age, fought and won the battles of Christ without these things. My dear brothers in Christ, ministers of the gospel now present, let me conjure you. He means let me plead with you. Stand to the gospel. Set your backs against the tendency of the times to depart depart from the simplicity of Jesus Christ. If men will not come to hear us because we preach the gospel, draw them by no other attractions. That's plain speaking, friends. Now, you may not immediately agree with it, but I ask you to consider it. I think Spurgeon is making a point which, though it has its particular application in his time and place, is as relevant for us today as it has ever been. We're out of time, so we must say goodbye for now. If you're enjoying these podcasts, please uh, leave a a rating or a review on your favourite podcast app. And please come back next week for sermons 654 through to 660 if you're reading day by day. Or you can read sermon 655, which is next week's featured sermon. It's titled The Great Itinerant, uh, The Great a traveller, if you will, the great one who goes about. What does he go about doing? Tune in next week to find out with us. Thank you for listening, and may God help us to put these principles into practice in our own thinking and feeling and serving.